It's great to see everybody on this bright, sunny day. It's amazing what a little sun will do for the spirit, huh? I woke up this morning and didn't feel like killing anybody for the first time in a couple of months, so I'm grateful for that. Uh, welcome to all of you. If you're joining us via live stream, uh, welcome to you as well. Uh, this morning we'll be back in our David series, and so if you, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open that up uh, or turn it on on your device. Head to 1 Samuel chapter 31. That's where we're going to camp out together this morning. And I'm just going to warn you on the front end of this message, uh, this passage is a, uh, it's a sobering one. And it's sobering because it deals with topics that we typically are uncomfortable with as human beings. We just uh, don't usually like talking about things like the consequences of our own sin or, or death. And so I'm in, that, I'm in that same camp. We just don't like talking about those sorts of things. And so the most of the time, we just kind of ignore those subjects altogether. But in the end, I don't think we're really doing ourselves any favors by avoiding the tough conversations. One of the things I really appreciate about Scripture is that it, it forces us in a very real way to deal with the tough stuff of life. And if I'm being completely honest with you this morning... Uh, earlier in the week, as, as I was going back over this, this story, this narrative, and, and reading in First and Second Samuel, um, I, I was very tempted to actually skip over this chapter and, um, and just kind of like, hey, man, this is not that important. Let's just, let's just go on to the coronation of David or something happy like that. Uh, but again, sometimes in life, you just need to eat your vegetables to be healthy, right? You can't eat like a cheeseburger or a steak three times a day. I mean, I guess you could, but you'd probably die of a heart attack. So sometimes you just got to eat your veggies. So this morning we're going to eat our veggies and we're going to like it together, okay? This is going to be good. Now, here's the interesting stat about death maybe you've never heard before. Ten out of ten people die. Hey, that's that. Maybe that's new to some of you. Uh, but all of, uh, all of us, apparently, according to the stats, are going to die. Some of us sooner than others of us. And the sad thing is that so many of us, I feel like we allow the pace of life to sort of cloud out the things that really matter in life. And so oftentimes we wake up one day and the people that really matter to us most are gone. Or even worse, we wake up one day and, and our time in this life is, is over. And I'm just convinced there are a lot of people, uh, many people, perhaps even most people, die with a lot of regrets. And I don't want that to be you, and I don't want that to be me, and I don't want that to be us together as a faith family, and I know that's not what God wants for us either. And so we're going to be tackling some of these tough things together this morning. You know, Solomon, who was described as the wisest man to ever live, he wrote a, a book in the Old Testament called Ecclesiastes. And I want to share with something, you something that he wrote in that book. This will be on the screens for you, but Solomon said, it is better to go to a house of mourning, like a funeral, than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Solomon was saying, listen, since death is something that we all experience, we would be wise to pause and think about it, to ponder our own death, to take it to heart, to consider how we live in light of death. And I think Solomon was right. And if he was right, then I think our time together this morning will be time 
well spent in the grand scheme of things. Now, before we jump into the text, just want to say a couple of really quick things about death, generally speaking, because I'm just afraid there's, there's a lot of unhealthy, there are a lot of false ideas in our culture and in our society about death that have sadly, unfortunately, kind of bled into the church. And so you'll hear these things among people in the church, you'll hear it among, even pastors will say stuff like this. And so I just want to kind of set the record straight, a couple things about death from a biblical worldview. And the first one is this, De- death is not natural. Okay, so I hear people say stuff all the time, like, man, well, yeah, Aunt Susie died, but you know what, that's all right, because death is just a natural part of life, just a normal part of life, circle of life, man. And so you hear stuff like that all the time, I just want to say, no, it's not normal, <laughs> No, it's not. Now, for the last 150 years, Darwinian naturalism has attempted to make us believe that it's normal, but have you ever wondered why death just feels so wrong? Like, as you go to a funeral or somebody you know that you love dies, and it just, it feels wrong. We buried my grandma uh, last week or the week before, and uh, I remember we were, drove down to Birmingham, Alabama, and just standing there, looking in her casket, looking at my grandma's body, just this feeling of strangeness. Like, this doesn't feel straight. This seems wrong. <laughs> Cheryl and I, my wife and I, we lost a, a baby due to miscarriage about a year and a half ago, almost two years ago. In both cases, when we lost my grandma, we buried her, we lost a baby. I just had this overwhelming sense like, man, this isn't right. This, is, this doesn't feel right. It feels wrong. This is not the way things are intended to be, not the way things are supposed to be. And the reason that I felt that way and the reason that you feel that same way when you go to a funeral or somebody you love dies is that death was not a part of God's original design for us. Death is a result of sin. In God's original design, we were created to live forever. That's why the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans that the wages of sin is death. Death is the result of sin, not a part of God's original design. So I think death should, especially as believers, death should just kind of like tick us off. Like this isn't the way things are supposed to be. This isn't right. This is wrong. And it should cause us to long for the coming kingdom of Jesus where everything will be restored to the original design. With no more death, no more suffering, no more disease, no more tears ever. Christian ethicist uh, Russell Moore He says this about death. He says, the gospel of Jesus sees death as an alien invader of the cosmic order, a curse from the fall, and a strategy of an enemy spirit to crush God's image-bearing humanity. Moore goes on to say this, and I love this. This will be on the screens for you. He says, the resurrection of Jesus was the first wave in a counter-revolution that will turn back death's tyranny and satanic rule forever. Jesus has dealt a death blow to death itself. And that victory will be fully realized in his coming kingdom, in the consummation of that kingdom. But until that day comes, we have to, we must reckon with our own death in order to live fully and freely the way God intends for us to live. So with that backdrop in place, let's jump right into the text. 1 Samuel 31, we'll start in verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Now, remember, this, this battle between Saul and the Philistines is happening almost simultaneously with the battle between 
David and the Amalekites. Do you guys remember that story from two weeks ago? The Amalekites come in, they kidnap all the wives and the kids of David and their, his men, all their families, and David just submits to God, right? He's crushed, they're all weeping, their families are gone, they're kidnapped, and David goes to God, what do you want me to do? And God tells David, hey, listen, go, go after them, pursue them. So David pursues them, they catch up with the Amalekites as they're in this valley, and they're just partying it up, right? And David's down to 400 men, so he goes into this battle. All this is going down around the same time that Saul is going into battle with the Philistines, right? So David going into battle, Saul going into battle. But there's a stark difference I think God means for us to see here between David and between Saul, right? They're both going into battle. David is seeking God. He's heading into battle badly outnumbered, and yet we see that he's fearless. He's just got this kind of like ferocious boldness about him. Then you got Saul, on the other hand, he's also heading into battle, The difference is he has a huge army on his side, and he is racked by fear. He's just consumed by his own fear because he's separated from God by his sin, and he's paralyzed by it. So we see David seeking God in his crisis. We see Saul seeking, if you remember a couple chapters ago, seeking a medium. He actually goes to like a witch doctor that communicates with the dead to get answers. So David runs to God when the mess hits the fan in his life. Saul turns to functional saviors. And we talked about this last time. We do the same thing oftentimes, don't we? We turn to functional saviors in our life when we step into crisis points, oftentimes instead of turning to God. And functional saviors can be anything. We talked about that. It could be food. It could be alcohol. It could be sex. It could be work. It could be something positive like physical fitness. It could be relationships. But David doesn't do that. David turns to God And Saul turns to functional saviors. And then we see the result of that. We see David winning the battle against the Amalekites with God. And then simultaneously we see Saul getting destroyed in battle as he's apart from God against the the Philistines. And so there's a parallel here that's good for us to see. And it's this. God's presence leads to confidence in life and victory in life. When we walk in his presence, there's this sense of blessing that we walk in. And the absence of God in our lives leads to what we see in Saul's life, a life of fear and a life of defeat. And Saul's life is about to end in utter tragedy. In fact, out of all the stories in the Bible, and there are a ton of stories in the Bible, the story of Saul may be the most tragic of all. So let's dive back in, verse 2. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab, and Malchi Shua, the, son, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. Now, if you've been around for this series, this is vintage Saul, isn't it? Saul's self-focus is on Full display here. Even in the moment of his death, Saul would not repent. The guy is standing there. He's mortally wounded. He's got arrows hanging out of his body. And instead of turning to God, he's worried about being disgraced by his enemies. In death, as in life, Saul refused to trust God. And to his dying breath, he took things into his own hands instead of seeking God and trusting him. 
As I go through this story, and I've read through this narrative a bunch of times over the last few months, I just, I've often wondered what would have happened if Saul had just repented of his sin. Like if Saul had just repented and turned back to God, how could this story have ended differently for Saul? Like who knows, right? Maybe the Philistines capture him. Maybe David becomes king. Maybe David comes and rescues him and he gets to live out in some, some palace in the countryside with his kids and his grandkids in peace in good standing with God, but Saul would not have it. Saul wanted to be the captain of his own life, of his own ship. No repentance, no trust in God in life or death. And that is the tragedy of Saul's life and that is the tragedy of so many of our lives. Now, here's the thing that I think should startle us just a little bit as we read about Saul's life and death. In many respects, Saul appeared to be religious. Okay, so you remember back to the start of the story back a couple of months ago, Samuel was this, he was this prophet of God. He anoints Saul as, as king with oil and he, he tells him, hey Saul, listen, you're gonna be the prince that leads God's people to salvation, in fact, after Saul's first military victory, he actually gives God the credit. There were times in his story in his life where he would go to, to priest in the temple to hear from God. You might remember he even seemingly uh, uh, repented when David spared his life. There was this time where Saul wept in the face of David's grace and mercy towards him. From the outside looking in, Saul seemed like a religious, spiritual man. But there was a problem. Saul's heart was far from God. Every time he appeared to seek God, it was always from a place of self-preservation or desire to have God work for him. And so this is the first truth I want you to see together this morning. If you're a note taker, write this down. This is important. Number one, you can be religious and not know God. That was true for Saul and that's true for us. I remember uh, in high school when I turned 16, I decided that I wanted to uh, have some independence. And so I wanted to get a car. And so my parents said, boy, go get a job. You're going to have to pay for your own car. So one of my first jobs is I went to, went to Walmart. I don't know if you've ever had the joy of working at Walmart. But I, I worked at Walmart. That was one of my first jobs when I was 16 years old. And this was back in the time when Sam Walton was still around. Or maybe he had just passed away. Uh, but man, his presence was all over that company. And Sam Walton was a great man. He was a family man. He was a believer as far as I know. So you'd go through the Walmart, you know, employee training stuff and they'd have videos of him talking and he was just a really likable guy. I mean, I just like Sam Walton. And they would, you'd go in the break room and stuff and they'd have posters of him and certain quotes. In fact, he wouldn't even call his employees employees. He would call them associates. Right, because he just wanted to create a, a family atmosphere. And he was well known for just going into his stores, going into warehouses, just hanging out, having lunch with his employees, just like one of the guys. He was, he was just a great man. And so I remember even at 16 years old, just feeling like this sense of like fond affection for the man. Like I never met him, but I felt like I knew him, right? Because I'd watched a bunch of his stuff and his fingerprints were all over the company. Now just imagine if I was in an airport one day and I walk in to the terminal, and Sam Walton, is, he's sitting right there. And I go up to him and go, hey, Sam, it's Chris. How you doing, man? How are the kids? How are the grandkids? You want a vacation together this summer? Like, he would look at me and say, this dude is crazy. Where's, where's security? Get this freak out of here. Look, just because I knew all about Sam Walton didn't mean I knew Sam Walton. 
I knew all about him. I knew about his life. I knew about his business philosophy. I knew a lot about his, like his personality quirks. I knew his kids' names. I knew a lot about Sam Walden, but I did not know Sam Walden. And I'm convinced there are a ton of people who are active in church, who are serving in church, people who know the Bible, people who self-identify as Christians who do not know God. And you say, Chris, man, that sounds really judgmental. Yeah, who are you? You can't judge people's heart. Who are you to say somebody? I didn't say it. Jesus said it. In Matthew 7, this will be on the screens for you. Listen to the teachings of Jesus. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, right? See, there's this connection between loving and trusting Jesus and actually obeying Jesus, that we can't get away from, no matter how hard we try. Verse 22, on that day, many, not a couple, not a few, on that day, on that final day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Church, this is chilling. There are people right now who are busy working for God that don't know God. And there are people, just like Saul, going through the motions, saying all the right stuff, doing all the right stuff, who don't know God, and they will spend eternity separated from him forever in a nightmare of a place that the Bible calls hell. Friend, let the life of Saul and the words of Jesus compel you this morning to consider your life and the condition of your heart. Now, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus this morning and you know you're not, whether you're religious or not, that's irrelevant. If you're here and you haven't submitted your life to Christ, you're not following him in your life, I want you to know, I don't think it's a coincidence that you're here right now, this morning, listening to this message right now. I believe you're here by divine appointment. You're here to hear that there is a God in heaven who created you, who loves you, who wants you to know him and wants you to experience abundant life now and in eternity. And he proved it by sending Jesus on a rescue mission for you. But just like Saul, he is not going to force you to love him or trust him. That's a decision that you have to make as the Holy Spirit of God draws you. And I'll even say this to those of us in the room who claim to be Christians this morning, I think it's a healthy exercise for us to pause and just examine our lives and simply ask the question, am I working for a God I don't even know? Like, am I just going through the motions of being a religious person or a spiritual person all the while being completely separated from God? If that's you, if you're just honest, actually honest enough with yourself to do a self-inventory right now and you're thinking in your mind, in your heart right now, like, oh no, like, that could be me. Like, I think that might actually, that might be me. Like, if that's you, I want you to understand, you have a chance to do this morning what Saul refused to do, and that's repent from your sin, repent from your religion, and find life in and through Jesus. Friend, religion will not save you. Being busy in church will not save you. Knowing God through Jesus is life. 
And see, the issue for Saul is he kept trying to deal with the symptoms of his sin without ever dealing with the root issue. And the root issue was his heart. I love what one pastor said. He said, unless you deal with the root, you will never change the fruit. You like that? Unless you deal with the root, you will never change the fruit of your life. See, the problem is some of you just keep dealing with the symptoms of your sin, and you never actually get to the root. And that's why you just live in this constant state of frustration. Listen to me. Ultimately, you don't have a porn problem. Ultimately, you don't have an overeating problem or a gossip problem or a sexual problem. Ultimately, you have a heart problem. We all have a common problem, and that's sin, and we all have a common solution, and that's Jesus. And until you allow God, by the power of the gospel and his spirit, to begin addressing your heart, fighting the symptoms of sin is futile. It's completely pointless. Now, if you're sitting there and you're thinking, man, oh, how do I know, Chris? How do I know if I've ever repented from a certain sin? Or how do I know if I've ever repented at all, like in giving my life to, to Jesus? I think there's one telltale sign, and it's this. Are you broken over your sin, or do you minimize it? Like when you fall, does it wreck you? Does it push you to forgiveness from God, or you, do you just begin to justify it? Well, you know, I know I shouldn't be living with my girlfriend, but man, it's 2019 and everybody's doing it and it saves us some money. Man, I know I shouldn't be looking at porn, but you know, I guess that's better than having an affair. I know I don't give financially to God the way he commands me to, but I'm sure he understands because I really got to have that iced vanilla latte every morning, you know? No big deal. Church, listen to me. Repentance leads to brokenness, not justification. Now, we'll see that in a couple of weeks coming up as David falls, and he's going to show us what real repentance looks like. But for now, Saul is going to show us what fake, religious, non-repentance looks like. So let's continue in the story. Saul has just asked his armor bearer to kill him. We pick up there. But his armor bearer would not for he feared greatly. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and he fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Saul's armor bearer wouldn't kill him, and so Saul commits suicide. His final act of disobedience, his final act of defiance, of wanting control of every part of his life, including his own death, Instead of trusting in God. Now, this brings up a common question that you hear a lot in church circles. In fact, if you grew up in church, you probably heard this at some point. The question is this. Is suicide the unforgivable sin? The answer to that question is absolutely not. Jesus does speak about an unpardonable sin. We addressed that last year in the Hard Sayings of Jesus series. We don't have time to dig into it today. Feel free to go back and listen to that. But suicide is not an unforgivable sin. Listen, Saul was not separated from God by suicide. Saul was separated from God because he refused to repent and turn to God. The bigger question for most of us this morning, friend, is this. How will you finish your race? It's not how you start. Saul started his race well enough, but it ended in tragedy. 
It's not how you start, it's how you finish. So how will you finish, friend? And that leads right into our second truth this morning. It's this, how you finish the race of life matters. Your life, in so many ways, will be defined by how you finish. Your legacy to your kids and your grandkids and your friends will not be your failures from yesterday. Your legacy will be how you finish from this day until your last day on this planet. Friend, every day counts. Every time you get alone with God in prayer, it counts. Every time you open his word and commune with the living God of this universe, it counts. Every time you love somebody else in Jesus' name, it counts. Every moment of every day counts. Friend, finish your race well. Let's finish the rest of the story. Verse 6. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled and the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on, the Mount, on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his, that Saul's armor, in the temple of Ashtaroth, temple of false gods, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh. And they fasted for seven days. Notice who else dies in battle. It's not just Saul. Three of Saul's sons die in battle, including Jonathan. David's best friend, Jonathan. Jonathan, who loved God who laid down his life and his crown to follow God and support David. First Chronicles chapter 10 tells us that Saul died for his sin. But why did Jonathan have to die? Doesn't this seem unfair? Listen, I think we learn a hard but important lesson here, and it's this. Church, listen to me. You never sin alone. You don't sin in a vacuum. Your sin comes with real life consequences. Hear me say this. The shrapnel of your sin will make those you love bleed. Sin is no small thing. And we do ourselves and those we love no favors by minimizing it or justifying it. It is a cancer it will ravage your life and the lives of those you love. Listen, friend, kill the sin in your life. Turn from it. Run from it. Rabbi Zechariah says this. He says, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And it'll cost you more than you want to pay. Isn't that true? Friend, don't finish like Saul. But understand this, 
we all deserve to die the death of Saul. Saul died a sinner's death. We deserve no less. That's the bad news. The good news in this narrative is just when everything seemed completely hopeless, completely lost for the nation of Israel, right? Their their mighty warrior king, Saul, is dead. His body hanging on a city wall in mockery. The crown prince, the heir to the throne, Jonathan, also slain in battle, dead. The evil Philistines, these pagan people, sacking their cities one by one, taking them over. And yet, right in the middle of that, right in the middle of the the wasteland of their lost hopes and crushed dreams, God was raising up another king from the ashes who would come to save his people in David. Now, does that story sound familiar to you? That's the gospel. When things seemed hopelessly lost for us, when we were also enslaved by our sin, when we were trusting in kings and saviors who would fail us as well, God was raising up his king from the ashes who would come for us. But this king, unlike David, is perfect. And he will establish an eternal kingdom. Friend, Jesus came for you when you had no way out. Saul died for his own sin. And his enemies lifted him up in shame on a wall. But Jesus died for our sin. And his enemies also lifted him up in shame on a cross. Saul bled for himself. Jesus bled for you. See, this story in 1 Samuel, ultimately this story is thrusting us into another story, a greater story. It's driving us to a better king. The king who came for you, lived for you, bled for you, died for you to give you life and hope. See, through Saul's death, the salvation of Israel would come through David. And through Jesus' death, our salvation has already come. And because of Jesus, now we can live and die in freedom. It's like the song says, no fear in life, no guilt in death. As we close this morning, I want to invite you just to bow your heads with me for a second. We're going to talk for a minute. I'll pray and then we'll sing. We'll be done. You can get out and enjoy the sun. Here's a question I have for you this morning. Have you ever received this gift of life from Jesus? I'm not, listen, I'm not talking about religion. This is not about religion. I'm not talking about being active in church. You can be religious and you can be active in church. You can know all about God and never know God. I'm talking about having real life, about really knowing God, being at peace with him through Jesus. Do you have that? Have you ever actually repented? Have you done what Saul would never do? Turn from your sin and literally give your life to Jesus. If you're here this morning and you haven't done that and you want to do that, it's just part of you in your heart, in your soul right now. It's like, man, that's what I know. I know that's what I need. I know that's what I want in my life. We're going to sing in just a minute. As soon as we're done singing, we're going to have some prayer counselors up here. If God is moving in your heart, the Spirit is drawing you to him, just come up here after we sing. Let us us talk to you. Let us pray with you, pray over you. And for those of you who are believers in the room, here's a question for you. How are you finishing your race? 
And I'm not just talking to the older generation. Listen, some of you are here and you're in your teens, you're in your 20s, you're in your 30s, and you will not live to see old age. None of us are promised tomorrow. You may be in the final lap of your race of this life, whether you're here and you're 92 or you're 12. How are you finishing your race? Every day counts. Friend, flee from sin. It'll wreck your life. It'll hurt the people you love most. Run from it. Run to Jesus. Find satisfaction in him. And watch as he takes the ashes of your life and makes something beautiful. Let me pray for us, and then we'll sing. Father, you are good. You are good in all that you do. Father, you breathe life into death. You take brokenness. You make it whole. God, you take darkness. You make it light. God, you take dead people like us and you make us alive in Jesus. God, would you do that again today? Would you do it right now in this room? God, would you draw people who know about you but don't know you? God, would you woo people? Will you draw people in, the people that think they're in when they're really out? Would you bring them into your kingdom this morning, God, for their good, for your glory? Father, for those of us that know you, help us not to waste another day. Help us finish the race well, to give our lives to that which actually matters, and that's to you and your mission and your kingdom. But God, we confess that we can't do that apart from you. We are weak in our own strength, but your word tells us that in you, we are more than conquerors. So our confession this morning, God, is that we need you to do this We need you to help us finish our race well, to run it strongly, God. So we ask this in the name of the king who came and bled for us. We ask it in the name of the king who rose from the ashes and now reigns and gives life to all who call on him. We ask it in that name, the best name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Church, will you stand and sing?